Well, hello, everyone. Hope you're doing okay these days. And thank you so much to uh, the folks who just read for us and also everyone else who has uh, contributed in some way to this community outreach service. Isn't it great to see so many people involved? Well, today we're going to continue with our Reclaim teaching series, and we're going to focus on reclaiming our relationship with God. Or perhaps it's actually God reclaims a relationship with us. We'll see. And let's start with this. My wife, Karen, is an artist potter. She's worked with clay for 31 years to create functional art, one-of-a-kind bowls and platters and other cool stuff, and also fine art sculptures that artistically express something. So let me take you through what goes on when Karen makes a beautiful platter. She cuts off a chunk of clay, rolls it into a slab, cuts out a shape, then sets the trimmings, the leftover clay, aside. Now, trimmings don't go to waste. Karen wedges the trimmings together, then rolls, cuts, and shapes it into another beautiful form. But you can only do this a few times, as Karen explains. The clay constantly loses moisture, drying out, becoming less plastic, less flexible, and starts to crack and get brittle, till you can no longer work with it to make things. But again, dried out clay isn't wasted. It just needs love, care, and hard work. Or in the technical language of an artist potter, it must be reclaimed. People who work with clay for fine craft or fine art continually reclaim their clay, collecting the dried-out clay in a bucket and letting it get bone-dry, another technical term, meaning no moisture, just crumbly, powdered clay. Then the work begins. Listen again to Karen. I break all the bone-dry clay down into the smallest pieces possible. Then I pour in enough water to completely saturate it. We call this a slurry, as the water works through the clay and rehydrates it. I drain the excess water off, then take the sloppy mess and put it onto a board and leave it to dry, until I can lift it up and flip it over. I dry and flip it back and forth like this till I know by feel that I can work the clay again. Then I wedge it into a smooth consistency, and now it's ready, like new, reclaimed, restored to a usable clay, just like clay from a store. So let me give you four takeaways from all this. Number one, clay repeatedly dries out. Number two, bone-dry clay must be reclaimed to serve its purpose again. Number three, clay is literally in the reclaiming clay is literally in the hands of the artist potter. And number four, reclaiming clay takes work, but it's worth it. Why? Because after clay is reclaimed, it can be used again to form and fashion beautiful things. Let's keep all this in mind as we look at Luke chapter 15, a wonderful scripture passage that gives us the good news of Jesus in a nutshell a passage that does speak of being spiritually lost, but more importantly, shows us how to find our way back to God when we are. Or maybe it's that God finds his way to us. God goes looking to find and reclaim us as his own. Luke 15 begins with tax collectors and sinners gathered round listening to Jesus over a meal. So who exactly were these people? Well, they were the social and religious outcasts of Jesus' day. Fellow Jews detested the tax collectors. Why? 
because they served the Roman conquerors of Jewish Palestine, collecting taxes for the empire while also taking a hefty extra cut for themselves, extortion through intimidation, with soldiers at the tax station making sure you paid. The sinners, meanwhile, were looked down on because, let's be honest, some chose ungodly lives, but more often these so-called sinners were just poor common folk who didn't understand the details of Jewish religious law and besides had to take what they could get, living lives and doing jobs just to survive, even if these didn't measure up to religious expectations. So these tax collectors and sinners were a mixed bag group of people whom the high and mighty upright religious folk saw as immoral and spiritually lost. They judged them as living outside God's ways and avoided them, not wanting to get the dirt and grime of that big bad world out there on themselves. Yet in chapter 15, we meet Jesus, presumably a good Jewish man who practiced all the rules and rituals of his faith, in conversation with these outcasts, taking an interest in them, even sharing a meal with them, the ultimate gesture of welcome and acceptance in the society of Jesus' day. And then the high and mighty religious folks show up, the Pharisees, the keepers of the law of Jewish law, and the scribes, the teachers of the law. These guys were a bunch of patriarchal told-you-sos who made sure everyone obeyed all the hundreds of laws of the Jewish religion and practiced all the rituals of their faith, too. And they're not impressed with Jesus. Why? Verse 2, this man welcomes sinners, and he even eats with them. So Jesus responds to their condemnation by telling stories that speak of what it really means to be spiritually lost, and more importantly, that reveal the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of a God who sets out to reclaim us when we are. And by the time Jesus is done, no one is left standing. These stories remind us that we are all lost. We are all off course from our spiritual purpose. We are all like dry, brittle clay that must be reclaimed if we are to serve our purpose again. Consider the parable of the lost sheep. Now, recent behavioral research, so I'm told, suggests that sheep have excellent memories. That is, that's what keeps them together. They recognize their fellow sheep and the shepherds who care for them. But if a sheep gets separated, maybe lingers too long over a nice patch of grass while everyone else moves on, well, without these memory reference points, sheep get confused, wander off, get into all kinds of foolishness as the shepherds of Jesus' day knew all too well. But Jesus isn't just telling a nice little story about lost sheep, is he? No, he's speaking of the misguided things we think and say and do that separate us from God and from each other. And he's saying that sometimes we get spiritually lost through foolishness, like sheep do. We lose touch with the reference points in our lives, and we wander off losing our way, going places in our minds and hearts, getting involved in situations or relationships that we shouldn't. Ever done that? I have. Ever said something or done something or made a decision or got involved with someone and later regretted it? Man, how could I have been so foolish? But now you're lost and aren't sure how to find your way back. Now let's look at the parable of the lost coin. The coin isn't lost through any fault of its own. own. It's just a coin. 
one of ten silver coins that was part of a fancy headdress this woman was wearing. And by the way, uh, that was common in the time of Jesus, a fancy headdress like that. And it broke, and coins went every which way over an uneven floor with cracks between the stones. And one coin rolled into a crack. Jesus is saying that sometimes, like this coin, we get lost not really through any fault of our own, but because something happens to us through the actions of others, or we just get caught up in a situation. But once we realize what's happened, we settle in, we get stuck there, and don't even try to find our way out. In the language of this story, we get caught in a crack and, and are content to just stay there. You know, being lost like this has been a real challenge during this pandemic. We're caught up in a situation not really of our own making, yet if you're like me, you just feel stuck sometimes, caught in a crack, unable to move, even now as we inch along the path to green. Now let me qualify all this a bit. The pandemic has also shown us the creative resilience of people, doing renos on houses, taking up life-giving hobbies, producing great art, adapting businesses to new realities. While on the other side, the pandemic has also taken people to some very difficult places, a crisis in mental health, a dark night of the soul. And let me just say, if this is where you are right now, please reach out for help from a doctor, a counselor, a pastor, a friend. But for many of us, we are just, well, stuck somewhere between these two extremes, aren't we? Pastor Rob talked about this last Sunday. He called it a season of languishing. Our time with God just isn't happening. Or we're couch potato binging on Netflix way too much, maybe even watching right through dinner with a partner or roommate with barely a word passing between us. Guilty. Folks, many of us right now are stagnating, going through the motions, just blah. No longer investing in our relationships with God, with each other, and even with ourselves. We are caught in a crack, spiritually stuck, lost. On to the parable of the lost sons. We need to understand two things here. First, in the social custom of the time, the older son received two-thirds of the father's inheritance, the younger son one-third, after dad died, not before. Second, according to social custom, respect for parents was absolute. Dad and mom made all important decisions, even for adult children, who were expected to abide by what their parents said. And if you didn't, well, there could be consequences. Listen to the words of Moses as he instructed the people of Israel on parent-child relationships in the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother even though they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders as they hold court at the town gate. The parents must say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town must stone him to death. In this way, you will purge this evil from among you. Folks, everyone listening to Jesus' story would have been familiar with Moses' teaching. So given that, let's look at the younger son. 
He is obviously stubborn and rebellious. His father had every right to take him to the town gate, so to speak. Why? Because he demands full control of his one-third of the property now. And in doing this, completely disrespects his father. His words and actions amount to him saying, Dad, I wish you were already dead. Yet the father, surprisingly, agrees to his son's demands. And the younger son promptly sells off his share of the property, pockets the money, hits the road, and wastes his wealth, as it says in verse 13, in a distant country. That is, in a place as far away from the good influences in his life as he can get, losing himself in wild living as a glutton and drunkard and whatever else wild living means. Jesus is saying that sometimes we intentionally choose to be spiritually lost. We just do. Like this son, we make choices and take actions that inevitably lead to a distant country. And there's no need to unpack this because I'm guessing that right now, you're recalling decisions or things you've done that you look back on with regret. The kind of regret this lost younger son knew all about. If his journey to the distant country began by rebelling against dad, it ended with him poor and more or less enslaved to a pig owner. Imagine, a Jewish man who under the law of Moses shouldn't even be around pigs having to feed and care for them. And it gets worse. The pigs are more valuable than he is. They're still getting fed on carob tree pods in the midst of famine, yet the pig owner isn't providing this young man with enough to eat, and he's starving to death. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Kyle Eidelman, an American pastor, put together a really creative study on Jesus' parable of the lost sons. The study is called Aha, and, he re and it retells this story in a television drama format, taking us into the lives of everyday people just like you and me who get caught up in their own distant country moments. When Eidelman looks at the younger son's situation, he says this, Sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you thought you'd ever pay. Inevitably, the distant country is always revealed to be a pig pen. What pig pen of your own making are you stuck in right now? And now let's look at the other lost soul in this story, the older son. You know, we instinctively see him as the good son, faithful, obedient, staying at dad's side, caring for dad's property. We see him, if we're honest, like we want others to see us, the model daughter and son. But guess what? He's as lost as his younger brother is. Remember, the older son stood to gain two-thirds of his father's inheritance. He's in a position of privilege, yet his attitude shows that he's forgotten what it means to be the oldest son. In fact, he's forgotten that he's a son at all. Let me explain. The late Henri Nouwen, a Catholic priest and writer, wrote a book on the parable of the lost sons. When Nouwen looks at this story, he points out that our word obedience comes from a Latin word meaning to listen, to pay attention. And the point Nouwen is making is this. An obedient life is a life in which you are listening. It's a life in which you are attentive to the voices of influence around you, like adult children were expected to be towards mom and dad in Jesus' time. 
Well, this older son has stopped listening. He's gone to a place in his mind and heart where he no longer hears that he's the oldest son who will receive everything one day. And he now confuses obedience with doing your duty, with a sense of burden, with slavery. If the younger son's sin is to declare his father dead, the older son's sin is to declare his dad not a father at all. He sees him instead as a slave master who must be obeyed. Look, the older son exclaims in verse 29, and notice that it's not look, dad. He doesn't even try to show respect. As if it's just a nasty, spiteful look, as if talking to a complete stranger. Then he continues, giving words to angry grudges he's carried forever. All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Then he goes further. Having rejected his father, he now disowns his brother. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This son of yours. Harsh words from a man who sees nothing worth saving in his brother. In fact, refuses to see him as his brother. And in doing that, confirms that the father of this son is no longer his father as well. You know, it's no stretch at all to imagine this older son saying of his father, as the Pharisees said of Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that's the point. Jesus is saying that we sometimes spiritually lose our way because we have the hearts of Pharisees. We think we're walking with the Lord, as we say, when actually our thoughts and words and actions betray the fact that we are far far from God's ideal for our lives. We look good on the outside like the older brother, but our pride and our holier-than-thou attitude warps our minds and hearts, making us slaves to sin just as much as anyone else. Folks, do you see yourself in these stories of Jesus? I do. We are all spiritually lost, aren't we? In fact, just as clay repeatedly dries out, So we keep getting lost again and again, don't we? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't tell these stories to guilt us. Yes, he wants us to wake up and own that we do get lost sometimes, but he wants to free us from holding on to this, which begins when we open ourselves to being reclaimed by God. Just as bone-dry clay must be reclaimed to recover its purpose, so we must be ready to let God reclaim us. Why? to turn us into something good and beautiful again. Another word for this is repentance, which means doing a spiritual 180, turning our lives right around to head back towards God. And the younger son in Jesus' story shows us how. Let's go back to Kyle Eidelman to unpack what repentance looks like. It's actually a process which moves from decision to action. Eidelman calls it an aha moment, meaning, first of all, that the younger son becomes so desperate in his life that he has an awakening. Verse 17, he came to his senses. He realizes the truth of his situation, that he's enslaved, forgotten, miserable. Second, as he wakes up, the younger son faces up to honesty. 
He owns the spiritual mess he's in. In his case, that he's lost because of destructive choices he's made. Verses 17 to 19. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against God, and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Third, and most important, the young son realizes that owning it alone won't change things. No, he has to take action to actually do something to make a difference. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. One more comment. Remember what we talked about a while back? The fact that clay needs the hands-on care and effort of the artist potter to be reclaimed? Well, in the same way, we need God's care and God at work to be spiritually reclaimed. Aha is not our own doing, folks. It's the quiet moving of the Holy Spirit, the one whom Jesus says in John 16 will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. It's the Holy Spirit working like water in the slurry and sloppy mess of our lives that moves us through that aha moment. God is in our aha, even if we don't realize it. Which brings us to the larger lesson in Luke chapter 15. Folks, everything to this point is just background information to this life-changing truth. God is love. In the searching shepherd, the diligent woman, and the worried father, we see images of what God's overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love looks like in action. Do you and I believe that God still values us, even when we are lost? In fact, values us so much that he goes looking to find us when we are lost? He does. We see this in the shepherd's persistence, who in the time of Jesus would have been obligated to either rescue the sheep or find evidence of its demise if he wanted to keep his job. God goes looking for us as if his job depends on it, almost as if his well-being depends on ours. Think about that. And we see this in the woman's thorough search, lighting a lamp and shining it everywhere till she finds the coin down in a crack. Why? Because those 10 silver coins, which were just 10 days workers' wages, were the dowry money she brought into her marriage and which are now the total life savings for her very poor family that she keeps close and protects in her headdress. And now 10% is missing. One day of their safety net is gone. God goes looking for us as if we are his life savings, as if we are his safety net, almost as if God's very survival depends on finding that 10%, depends on him finding you and me again. That's how much God values us. Think about that. Do you and I believe that God loves us so much that he's overwhelmed by joy? When we are reclaimed as his own, he is. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Quick, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In fact, do you and I believe that God is so generous that he simply banishes from his mind that we were ever gone at all, 
and restores to us all the privileges of being his own, he will. In the last story, Jesus tells the father, though his sons have declared him dead and no father at all, still treats them as if they've never said and done these things. When the young son returns, before he even floats the idea of being just a hired man for his father, verse 20, basically asking to trade one lowly situation for another with, but with a little better pay grade and meal plan, before he can ever do, even do this, his father runs, covers him with kisses, calls for a robe, a signet ring, and sandals, then throws a party, restoring to him all the privileges of a son. And when this same father goes to speak with his older son, who now sees himself as just a slave, and in this mindset cannot bring himself to ask for any of the privileges of sonship, what does the father do? He absorbs the tirade of abuse this son hurls at him in verse 29 about goats and friends and parties, then confirms in gentle words that though this son might believe that he's only a slave in his master's house, all the privileges of an older son still stand. Verse 31, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, says this, in a nutshell, the Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 tells the story of a God reckless with desire to get his family back. Do you and I believe that God in his love goes recklessly looking for us when we're lost? We should, for we have it on the authority of Jesus, God in the flesh, the one sent to find and save us that this is true. It's Jesus, the one who's telling these stories of being lost and found, who in fact is the one sent to reclaim us as his own, no matter, no matter what it takes. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Dear friends, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, sacrifice for our sins. Folks, that's what reckless love looks like. Sacrifice, Christ on a cross for us. So by the power of God's love, let's choose to live as people whom God has searched for and found, whom God has reclaimed as his own, and for the beauty of his purposes. Let's pray together. God, we know that we lose our way sometimes, and we want to own it right now. Lord, whether it's through foolishness or apathy or deliberate intent or pride, we go to that distant country far from you and from other godly influences in our lives. Yet in your love, you come looking for us in Jesus, you reclaim us, restoring to us all the privileges of being your own. And that is such a beautiful thing. God, thank you for this. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.